Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm Carl Rusk. On this episode, we're flipping the script, and I'll be interviewing your regular host, Mike Stacks, about the history of Ugly Things Magazine, which is now celebrating its 40th year in print, making it unexpectedly the world's longest-running rock and roll fanzine. Mike and I became friends in 1982 when I was 16 years old and Mike was just 20. Mike had recently moved to the U.S. from England to play in the great San Diego band, The Crawdaddies. The leader of that band, Ron Silva, who's been my musical partner in the Nashville Ramblers for the last 38 years, brought Mike over to my parents' house one day and suggested that Mike should move in with me and my family. Thankfully for me, he did. That day resulted in one of the most important relationships of my life. For the last 41 years, I've watched Mike grow as a music expert, a writer, a researcher, publisher, label owner, and a father. He's retained the essential nature that draws people to him, a quiet, compassionate, intelligent soul with a deep, encompassing love for the greatest music on earth and the uniquely exceptional people who make it. I had the pleasure to sit down with Mike and talk about his years of work on this magazine that's meant so much to so many people like me. And with that, here's Mike. Okay, this is what I've been thinking about. I remember sitting at the dining room table, you and I, <laughs> at my parents' house on Presidio Drive. Uh, you and I and April Napier, actually, a lot of the time, with an exacto knife and coming back, going to the copy shop uh, to go Xerox pictures and then coming back with an exacto knife and, and slicing them out and taping them, you know, glue sticking everything down. I remember doing all that work um, and it was super fun, like the typical kind of project that we would get into doing something crazy at that time. But what I don't remember is you ever saying, Hey Carl, I'm gonna make a I'm gonna make a music magazine. <laughs> I want to make a music magazine. We went from like putting together party bands and you know doing whatever, having fun, to you suddenly being like, "Hey, I'm gonna start a music magazine." And I just do not remember that moment at all. I don't remember you ever saying that. It was obviously 100% your project, and we we're like, "Yeah, sure, I'm gonna get on board." But it was your project. Do you remember that moment, that feeling of like, "I'm gonna do this"? Like what? was that 
Yeah, I don't remember an exact moment. It wasn't like a eureka thing, like it was in the bathtub. Aha, I'm going to start a fanzine. Um, but I I think I was always that way inclined. And uh, back in England, I, I put together, I remember I put together like a, a Rolling Stones sort of mini fanzine. It was more like a sort of a discography with some pictures and, and a little bit of writing. And it was probably 10 pages. And I made like three copies for my friends. So that was really my first fanzine. But um, so I... I just liked fanzines, and I think uh, people like Greg Shaw, being around Greg Shaw, it certainly inspired me. There was just so much, we were learning about so much music from the 60s at that point, and I wanted to sort of write about it. So obviously, if I want to write about it, I want to publish it, so I'll do a fanzine. Um, I, you know, I could figure out how to do that, and so with a little help from you and, and some others, April, and uh, you know, we figured out how to do it. And, um, yeah, I mean, it basically it was an outlet for my musical obsessions, our musical obsessions, because, you know, I got everybody on board, you and Ray Brandis and, and uh, I think Bill Calhoun wrote in a few things, uh, but certainly you and Ray. Um, come on, you write an article, you write a review. We're going to review these reissues, because we were buying all these reissues from the Eva label and the, all the stuff that Greg Shaw was putting out. We're going to review these. You can do this one. I'll do this one. Um, and it came together really easily. Um, yeah, that's that's all I remember about it. Let's well, since you brought up Greg Shaw, let's talk for a moment about how important Greg was in our lives on so many levels. How much music he introduced us to, especially I think. I think you and you you and he have a lot in common. I feel um, in terms of. In a way, your personalities, I think, um, your personas, you both are, you have a, the overall, this is something I want to get back to, but your overall persona of like Mr. Nice Guy, but really being a very quiet leader in the background, just simply through your knowledge, um, your writing, obviously, it's like real catalyst for an inc incredibly large movements, important movements that are still so important in so many people's lives but in such a humble, quiet way that they would never say, oh, I want to be a leader. Um, and probably that was never Greg's intention. And, and I don't think yours either, really. But, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. But talk about Greg Shaw for a moment and the role that he played in your life and as an inspiration for Ugly Things. Yeah, I mean, Greg was such a knowledgeable writer and a very articulate writer. He knew so much about music and he was such a diligent researcher. So I saw that in the pages of the Who Put the Bomb fanzine. And then um, when I moved to America, um, which Greg had certainly a hand in because I've seen the letter he wrote to Ron Silver that said, when I wrote to the Croydaddy saying, um, you know, I love your album and, and all this, he's, Greg actually forwarded that to Ron with a note saying, this guy sounds really sincere. You should be sure to reply to him, you know? Because that might not have even happened if not for Greg. So Greg recognized that enthusiasm in me. And when we met, I think he, he recognized that too because I was on a quest to learn as much as I could about 60s garage and beat music. And he had a huge record collection, all kinds of resources and all kinds of knowledge. So I was bombarding with questions all the time and requests for cassette tapes of music. And he was just happy as can be to provide that as he did to, I know, many people, because he was really a mentor kind of a guy. He, he completely, I mean, we're different in a lot of, way, a lot of ways, because Greg saw the big picture 
really well, and I'm less good at seeing the big picture. I'm better at seeing the little details. Greg saw the big picture, and he saw this knowledge and love and passion for 60s music as something that could be a movement that would change the culture, you know, which I never thought of it on that kind of scale. But Greg literally thought that, and he articulated that in some of his sort of manifesto editorials in Bump magazine. So he saw by nurturing people like me, people like Greg Prevost, you know, that we would spread the seeds around. And and he was completely right. I mean, for me, I was just taking in, you know, knowledge and music. That's that's all I cared about. Uh, I didn't see it as changing the world like Greg saw, (laughs) but he was right. Um, So, yeah, he encouraged me at every turn in all my bands and then especially with the fanzine. Um, once I started publishing it, you know, he always gave me advice. He would tell people about the fanzine. He would put me in contact with people. Um, yeah, I, he was huge. I, he, he was one of the biggest influences on me and one of the most important uh, people in the early development of the magazine, for sure. And later on, about uh, maybe about the 2000, so almost 20 years in, I remember he wrote me a long email and he said, Ugly Things continues to be the greatest fanzine ever. And I just thought, wow, you know, that's like, you know, Brian Wilson telling you you wrote, you, you have the greatest band or something, you know. I mean, he's like the, the fanzine guy, especially when it comes to 60s rock and roll fanzines. So it, that was one of the, the greatest compliments I ever had. And it really uh, inspired me to keep on going. So thank you, Greg Shaw. Yeah. He was so complimentary and so encouraging in general. I felt that too. I mean, I was such a little kid um, and he always was just so encouraging of the music and had suggestions and played me a song that he thought that I should do. Just just what a great guy. Yeah, yeah. He would suggest songs. And, and every time we would go to Bump, it was always a great occasion because he'd, we'd have the meeting with Greg about whatever. And then he would say, let's go to the warehouse. Yeah. And he would just sort of yeah, just pick up some stuff and we would leave with armfuls oh, yeah. of albums and fanzines and stuff like that. And, and that, would, that would feed our obsession for the next few months. Yeah, that was, it was like better than Christmas. You know, like that, that stack of records in the car and you just could not wait to get home and put it on the record player. Just be looking at those album covers, just feeling like, how did I get so lucky? <laughs> yeah. Then in retrospect, it's like that was the only pay you were ever going to get. <laughs> <laughs> in lieu of any royalties on record sales. It felt fair. <laughs> I kind of still think it is. I've got no complaints. It's better than the, it's better than the pay you get now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so while we're talking about that, those early days, I want to stick with that for a moment. Um, there was the the process <laughs> back then, pre computers, pre smartphones, pre internet, uh, which is crazy to think of now. It's like I don't, it's hard to imagine how we even lived, and yet I wish we could go back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so much. But uh, how, in, in in what ways do you feel, other than the speed, I mean, obviously speed and volume of the magazine, but computers and what other ways have they changed the magazine, both from a positive or a negative aspect of switching from this incredibly slow process to this incredibly fast process? Yeah, of course, of course the, you know, just in terms of layout, putting together and designing the magazine it was so limited with without computers because I would literally do it on a typewriter, shrink down the type, paste it in columns um, onto graph paper, paste in the photos and, and so on. And um, it was, 
a limp with my limited uh, skills, they, they were pretty primitive. You know, they they look cool now in retrospect. At the time, I, I thought they were they were pretty cool because it was the best I could do. And, you know, I didn't really need it to look professional. But then when the computers and desktop publishing came along, that enabled me to put together layouts much faster. I'm not having to cut out every column and glue it and make sure it was straight. You do that in a few clicks. So that would immediately enable me to start doing longer articles, bigger stories, incorporate graphics in a more creative way. So that part of it, the layout, the look, the format of the magazine, you know, completely revolutionized it. And then the other aspect is, of course, um, computers enabling you to track down people. Because prior to that, I used to uh, just look at names on record labels and then go to the phone, telephone directories. I'd have to go take the bus to the downtown library where they had the phone directories for each state or each city, you know, pull out the phone book for, say, Greenwood, Mississippi, to see if there was any herrings in there, and try to call every herring looking for Sid Herring, only to find that he'd moved to Tennessee. So these took some time. Um, I mean, it was really rewarding when you cold called and finally hit the right guy, but you'd spend a lot of time and, and you paid for every long distance phone call in those days. Just tracking people down was hard. And of course, the internet makes it relatively easy to find people. Um, so that aspect of it uh, is also easier. And, and, and research. I mean, you, you cannot only do your research using Google, though a lot of people think you can, but it does enable me to fact check certain things very quickly and um yeah so that's probably there's a lot more accuracy in the factual information that i'm presenting right let me segue away from the early days for a moment since you brought up this very investigative process that you have, it almost like accidentally became an investigative journalist along the way. Um, you talk about that growth of how you've grown as a journalist. Like, is that how you see yourself? Yeah, that was something that uh, wasn't part of the original plan. You know, I, I didn't start a fanzine so I could become a private investigator, but I suddenly you know, oh, not suddenly, but over time, I found that I was feeling that that was the case because I would have to hunt down old addresses, uh, old phone numbers, and track people through relatives that, yeah, I was suddenly starting to feel a little like Jim Rockford. I always loved the Rockford files. So, uh, so if there was ever an element of mystery or some kind of, you know, investigative skills involved in a story, it gave it more meaning for me and it gave it a little more excitement because um, I'm a persistent guy. So if it took me a year to track down somebody, you know, the reward felt so much better than if I just accidentally, you know, met somebody that was in a band back then, you know, yeah. which was also the case sometimes. But uh, yeah, that's the thrill, uh, become part of the thrill now. And um, it's not necessarily there on the page, but that's behind the scenes, you know? Well, I think it is there on the page. I mean, you're you're... You've always loved reading. I mean, maybe that's one of the benefits of coming from a pre-internet age is that you came from a, a time of reading novels, nonfiction books, but books. 
yeah. long form, real long form reading. I remember uh, you and I, you introduced me to H.P. Lovecraft and, and just so much stuff. Uh, at that time, we were reading Jean Genet, like just like a really wide, a diverse amount of books. And how do you feel that you've grown as a writer? Because you obviously now when you I read your editorials and whatnot, it's clear that you get lost in the stories. You get lost in the research. You get lost in writing it. And it, it's clearly something that you love. And I think that comes across in the writing. Um, do you feel that you've grown as a writer in the process? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's really what this has been about for me because I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I realize it now. It's the outlet for my, been the right outlet for my writing all these years. And it's enabled me to grow as a writer. I mean, when I read some of the early issues, the writing is pretty bad. And then it has grown better just by doing it more and more. By doing it for 40 years, I've grown as a writer. But as you said, I've always been a reader, um, you know, of good literature. Uh, and trashy literature, but mostly good literature. And that gives you something to aspire to. Then I think the more you read, the better you become as a writer. I mean, uh, you can't be a good writer if you don't read good other good writers. You know, that's just all there is to it. So you, so, and, and I find that certain writers, I just enjoy, the writers I like is I, I enjoy their voice and I enjoy being in their company. When I open their book and it's, it's their voice and, and it, it tells the story so well, um, it takes me out of my world and into theirs. So that's what I'm aspiring to do, is to have a voice that's my own, a voice that people enjoy to be with, to enjoy the company of. And and that's evolved over the years. You know, the earlier issues, I'm a little more edgy and sarcastic, I suppose, and, and maybe trying too hard to be funny with my little in-jokes that probably you and about four other people got, you know, and now I sort of have more in my head a picture of my readers and um, and what they're going to appreciate. And, um, you know, not, not so ne never to talk down to them, never to, uh, but on the other hand, never to over explain, just to, I kind of know how much knowledge they have and how to enlighten them without seeming like I'm pushing something on them or or explaining things they already know. So yeah, it's helped me find my voice as a writer. And that's what I love about it the most. It's really, you know, it's enabled me to become good at something. Yeah, absolutely. And then what, since you brought up your The Ugly Things Reader, how, how do you see when you're imagining your reader? What are you imagining? Who, what, it, I know you're, it's, a, it's a general statement, but to generalize. That's a good question, but I don't really have a picture in my head of, of what they look like, whether it's male or female or how old they are. It's just more feeling. And, and in a way, it's a projection of me, my tastes, because they, people who read the magazine have similar tastes to me. So I'm trying to put out the kind of magazine that somebody like me would like to read. It's the same, I think, you know, as a musician, you know, you're trying to make, write songs and record songs of records that you would like to have that, that don't exist. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with a magazine is tell stories that haven't been told yet that I myself would like to hear. Um, and by extension, the readers of the magazine. Yeah. How have your tastes changed over the years? In what way have they expanded and grown? And then how have you taken the magazine on that same journey with you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, my tastes, everybody's music tastes evolve. Yet at the same time, you there's a sort of core 
kind of music that you love. And, and that's the core of Ugly Things is, you know, it's represented by bands like The Pretty Things, bands like The Birds or The Music Machine or, you know, The Yardbirds. And then it branches off from there because you go exploring. You don't get stuck in the same rut. Um, part of the Ugly Things experience is turning people on to music, including myself. So it's all, we're all out there trying to, the kind of people that read ugly things are like me. They're always searching for new music to get excited about. So that has taken me into different directions. And originally the magazine was very 1964 to 66. was kind of the core kind of era that where we, music was at its peak, which to some extent I still agree, but now I also love the latest 60s stuff just as much. I love S of Sorrow and Parachute just as much as the early Pretty Things albums now. It didn't take me long to get there because it's a logical step if you follow the music and you follow the stories of the musicians, and that's uh, how it's been for me. So I, I try to I keep the magazine in the same general zone, but every now and then we take a little side turn just to surprise people and because if I find myself out there somewhere, I want to report back. So like, for, we've had some coverage in recent issues of like uh, Gabor Zabo, you know, jazz essentially, but he wasn't really, he was a jazz guitarist who was also making music that was very influenced by pop. It was very psychedelic without probably he, him even being conscious of that. Um, it's exciting music, music I love and listen to a lot. So I wanted to include that for the readers. And I, invariably find that they love it too because they also have broad tastes so i think people that don't read ugly things thinks it's just a you know 60s garage punk magazine you know or mod magazine or something like that sure yeah it's those things but it's also a lot of other things too and also we're reflecting the taste of the other writers which is why i have a team of writers that maybe cover music that I'm not as interested in, but I think maybe deserves its place in Ugly Things, especially if we're covering reissues. So I have someone like Doug Shepard who loves like hard rock and early metal. And uh, so he can cover that stuff. And other guys that maybe like some prog rock, which I'm pretty allergic to on the whole, but they can cover that. Um, and soul music, you know, which I love, but I don't know that much about. So you have writers, uh, Doug again is great on that. that and also someone like Bill Shute can cover soul and R&B in more depth than I can because they have a greater understanding of it. So yeah, it's quite a broad magazine, despite the Ugly Things title and the sort of images, you know, Garage Rock 101 kind of magazine. But there's a through line. There's a through line that connects all of these things since the first issue. Um, not just musicians, but even when you, on the first, well, again, I'm getting ahead of myself and I'm going to ask that question in a minute, but there is a through line to all these things, a connecting point. And what would you say that is? It's a uh, music that's uncontrived and honest. I feel like it, it, it's a very, it's human music uh, and it's got soul and it's, it's just real, and, and part of it is to do with the technology of the era that it was made in. Before the commercial uh, forces began to shape the culture, you know, it took it over and everything became sort of homogenized and sterilized. So it's got to be this pure kind of honest music, and, and that's the through line, and I just know it when I hear it, yeah. and I think we all do. And you can tell the phony a mile off, you know. 
and what's real. And uh, it could be a sunshine pop record or it could be a really crazy punk rock record. But, you know, if it's got that element, you'd recognize it right away. That honest element. They're also, they're, they're sort of pioneers. They're mavericks. They're not people who are following whatever's going on at the moment. These are people that are thinking for themselves, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I mean, that's always what's attracted me to musicians is the outsiders and the underdogs. You know, that's why, for me, the, the pretty things kind of embody that whole thing for me because they were the ultimate underdog outside a band that made bad decisions and did music to entertain themselves and because and use their limitations and were pure artists they weren't trying to get a hit they couldn't give a shit about commercial success they would have liked it but they didn't understand how to get it or wouldn't change to get it even if someone told them how um so yeah they that's why they're kind of the flagship band for me that embodies that whole spirit yeah it seems like that's the punk element more than punk being a style of music that makes it what makes these things punk in a way is just the disregard for anything except the expression of what they're trying to do yeah exactly yeah it's not uh it's not anything to do with anger or fuck the world or anything like that that stuff's boring and self-defeating it's yeah it's just pure artistic expression and being true to yourself above everything else our group of people uh, our friends, your readers. I feel often what we have in common is a, is a sense of isolation from the world as it is, or a dissatisfaction for the, for styles of the moment, both musically or any, or in popular culture, um, disdain for the music industry and the mercurial lack of taste of the general public, a lack of discernment about what they're consuming just sort of consuming whatever's coming their way at the moment. Um, I see that even from the first issue, you write about that, that that it's a reaction to or an antidote to the world as it is and what's going on at the moment, um, sometimes politically, sometimes in your own personal life. But meanwhile, over the years, almost everything about the music industry since you've started the magazine has changed. Everything about the way music is listened to and delivered has changed. Um, has your outlook changed? Has that affected your outlook on the world and the music industry and how the magazine is a reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, like you say, I mean, Ugly Things is born out of a sense of alienation to the what is mass culture, popular culture of of now, what's happening now. And uh, so there's a sense of alienation that's always been there. And uh, really, it only <laughs> increases over time because... Um, the world has become more and more less spontaneous and more and more thought out, more and more about the bottom line and all about market research. And as you say, the masses mostly will just consume what's put in front of them. Um, so, you know, in a way it's snobbish and elitist, but the readers of Ugly Things and, and ourselves, we have more refined tastes. We dig, you have to dig deeper to find the good stuff. And I think, you know, it's not a radical concept. I think a lot of people know that at their core, but they're a little too lazy or music's not as important enough element in their lives where they feel the need to have to dig. They'll be content with what's put in front of them. So, yeah, I mean, over time, you become more and more 
alienated. I mean, there's hope. I do see hope because I see younger people feeling the same way. And because now they have the internet at their disposal, they're able to find this stuff easier than we could back when we had to just dig through boxes of records and make judgment calls based on what was song titles were or what the label was. Now they can go on the internet and they can find anything, you know, from the most obscure rockabilly to the craziest private press psych is right there at their fingertips. And and they do know how to look and they, there are all kinds of tools to help connect them with that music. So I do see, a, you know, a greater appreciation of the music that we've been championing all these years um, and, and among young people especially. So I feel like we're in good shape in, in that sense. I still feel completely alienated and disengaged from the modern culture. But, you know, that's okay. I mean, I think if one day I woke up and I was in sync with with the world at large, I would I would know it was over for me, you know? I, something would be wrong. You know, I, I go through life like a lot of us do. You, you need that friction against what's happening around you. That's where the sparks fly and where th- uh, that's what gives you your sense of self and you know you're an individual and you've not fallen into lockstep with uh, the bullshit world absolutely um you know uh, on the other hand one thing that really fueled the excitement back in the early days was that we were uncovering something it felt like we were uncovering a new element that was more valuable than gold that we had discovered under the soil. And once we started to dig, it was just this incredibly rich thing. It was an entire, like discovering another planet or universe that nobody knew about. Yeah. And the excitement of how rare it was, like the, when, when we finally saw like video of the move on German TV, it, <laughs> you know, because our friend had it on a VHS that they exchanged with somebody in Japan or whatever. And that was the only way you were ever going to see that because there was no internet. Um, it was like, it was like a miracle. And the excitement and joy and rarity of it was, was unbelievable. That's so exciting to be able to, when Craig Shaw made us a cassette. Yeah. And we would drive up to LA and it was like, I, I don't remember each one, but I, I know we had like a Kenny and the Casuals cassette. And I think it was the first time we heard, was that the first time that you heard the Monks was from one of those? I can't remember how you... Monks, I first heard from Greg Shaw pretty early on. But yeah, the, there was always trading cassettes with people. And, you know, in that 90 minute cassette would be three or four songs that would practically change your life. You know, you'd want to either start covering them in your band or track them down to write the story. Um, yeah, it was unexplored territory to a large extent. And of course, that's gone away because now if you discover a rare record, you can go on the internet and there it is on Discogs or very rarely it's not somewhere on the internet. Um, somebody has already found it. It doesn't make the record any less great, but that excitement of, you know, <laughs> of hearing it for the first time. And as you say, you know, it's like a new world you were uncovering, but... You know, I suppose it was like when uh, the people came back, the explorers came back and brought back coffee and bananas and tobacco to, you know, to the old world from, you know, it was probably like the same thing. The same like, whoa, this is the greatest thing ever. And only I can have it, you know. Yeah. There's something about, I feel like there's something about the, um, the internet, YouTube, especially 
that um, devalues things of great value because it puts everything on the same accessible level. And it's hard to gauge as an outsider. If you just, if you were a kid and you see this for the first time, you know, you just watched something else that was completely average and <laughs> easily accessible one second before, and you're gonna watch something else one second afterwards. It's hard to understand, I think, its place in the world and how rare and how special it is when it's just completely yeah. available, right? It's true, but um, it does make it less special when you don't have to drive across town to somebody's house to watch some VHS tape that they just got from their friend in Germany. But on the other hand, the leveling of the playing field has made it interesting because now, in some ways, some of the more obscure bands are on the same footing as some of the uh, bands that had commercial success. And I find this especially when I talk to younger people. To them, it's it, it's all the same. You know, uh, The Who and uh, The Game are on the same level because they're both... You can hear them both at a few clicks on YouTube, but it doesn't matter that The Who you know, used to sell out stadiums and the game split up after three singles. It's so that's an interesting dynamic that I kind of enjoy. It's just, a, it's just a different, it's a different world and we're seeing it all in a new way now. Yeah, that's true. And then it, then you're just really judging it purely on a musical level. Like, do you like the song or don't you? Is it of quality or doesn't it? Yeah, that's it. That's how I see Philip, my son, you know, experience it. You know, he doesn't, get the whole album and go all the way through, you know, he'll just, you know, he'll say, I discovered this band from Greece called Aphrodite's Child and this great song called The Four Horsemen, you know, and like, oh, okay, you should, you should hear that whole double album. Uh, like, no, I'm good. I pick out the four songs on the album that I think are the best and I'll listen to those. That's just the way people consume music now, you know, and we can complain that we've lost something, which we have, you know, I love albums. I love the experience of the album on vinyl, but we're not all going to experience music that way. Again, we would be elitists if we demanded that of people. Right. And at least with a Spotify radio suggested playlist of, you know, algorithms, it's a, that's a lot better situation than clear channel owned top 40 radio as the only thing that young people listen to. Yeah. Yeah. At least they are exposed to things they wouldn't otherwise hear. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that's the leveling of the playing field. They, something really obscure might pop up because of an al algorithm and open up a new world for them. As someone that has known you very long, um, before there was ugly things. It seems you've always been, as, as I brought up about Greg Shaw, you've always been sort of a little bit of a Mr. Nice Guy, at least at least <laughs> in your overall demeanor. Those of us that know you really well know what a, what a snarky bastard you actually are. But, <laughs> but uh, you really became, after, especially after the Crawdaddies, after you were in the Crawdaddies, and I think it seems to me there was a separation at that moment of like, well, I'm going to, I really need I'm going to go my own way. And you already were to some degree. You certainly um, became more aware and obviously really became locally a champion of lesser appreciated 60s bands, especially European bands like the Outsiders or the Q65, right. bands like that, that other people, really other people, even in our 60s music scene, were not talking about at all at that time. How did becoming a champion of those bands and really becoming yourself becoming 
an expert, a particular expert and writing ugly things, how did that define your individual place in the world for yourself? Hmm, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I guess I, like everyone, I'm, I was searching for myself and I was trying to find myself in the music and the people who made the music. And that's, you know, when I saw Phil May and The Pretty Things, that I saw yeah, that's my tribe right there. And it was the same when I discovered Q65 on the outside. It's like, yeah, that's, that's me. That's kind of who I am. Um, of course, you have many other things, different cultures, different experiences. But it did help me find myself and the direction I wanted to go uh, in my life. You know, um, not only with the, the music that they played, but it was sort of their attitude, the look. You know, which is, you know, I guess that's kind of superficial, but it's not, not really. You know, when you th think in the context of the time, somebody like Wally Tax with hair past his shoulders, you know, in working class Amsterdam, you know, that was, you know, really challenging authority and inviting a beating, you know, and I kind of, for some reason, I thought I would like to invite a beating too, I guess. <laughs> All you had to do was ask. <laughs> but yeah, I wanted to I wanted to be myself. And uh, part of that, you know, part of how everybody defines themselves is by the music and the culture they choose to identify with and choose to try to understand. I, I wanted, I because I identified with them, you know, even like subconsciously, you know, you know, I wasn't consciously going, I want to be like that. But subconsciously, I was like, yes, that's, that's my people, and I want to understand them because that is, uh, you know, that helps me explain who I am, and uh, it helps me know more about myself, and, and helps me understand the part of the world that I think is important. So, in the process of that, you end up becoming, I guess, an expert, you know, because you gather all this knowledge and talking to these people above everything, you know, it's. There's a lot of magazines that just collected the records and wrote about the labels and the numbers, the matrix numbers and the serial numbers. I, I never that part of that's part of it, but it's a very minor part. It was once I started talking to the people in the bands and understanding their thought process when they were creating this music that was exciting me. That's when I became an expert for one of a better word, but that's when I came to, to understand the music in a whole new way. And then the music became even better, you know, it, it enhanced it. And then I thought that will enhance the musical experience for the readers too. So yeah, it's un try to understand how those people clicked, help me to, you know, really find more confidence in myself. You know, as you said, in the Crawdaddies, I was just, I was just a kid. I was so naive and inexperienced. Um, and, and I realized that it, that was, it was confining me being in the Crawdaddies. I, I was, I wasn't quite my slot in the world yet. It was a step along the way. That's all. And there, and it all becomes a step along the way because there are other points in my life where, and everyone has this. So, you know, you, you're always kind of growing, but then there's points where you, you really, re, not reinvent yourself, but you kind of get a new clarity and you cast aside a certain amount of the bullshit and baggage that's holding you back and double down on the things that are lifting you up and making you stronger. And that's, you know, I can think of four or five points in my life where that's happened, you know, and some, some are really powerful. And when I look back through the issues, I, I sort of see them taking place. I didn't write about them directly, but between the lines, I can see 
oh yeah, I was going through a bad period. And then inevitably it brings a new understanding and a new growth spurt. Yeah. I think that that, that element of um, humanity in, in the pieces that you write in the magazine in general, uh, little hints about your own life and what you're going through. It's a very personal style. And, and then I think that's in the way that you appreciate music and the way that you appreciate bands, I think people really respond to that in the articles that it's about these people's feelings and what they were going through and who they are as people and their dynamics within the band and less about just like the way that the really boring way that I think that a lot of other music books or articles are written where it's like, then they did this, then they did that. They're just like sticking to facts. Yeah. Um, and I think, that that's one of the things that makes ugly things really special is that you obviously that you love the music that you're writing about and you love these people that you have you form relationships with the people that you interview yeah um you talk about that a little bit yeah it's if you if you know music and as a musician and someone who writes songs yourself you know it's not about what date and what studio you used and what color the label of the record was it was about what were you going what was going on with the band at the time what was going on with you at the time when you wrote that song what were you listening to what was happening in your life where were you living uh what was going on in the world at that time all those things feed in to what you're creating and that's what i want to understand when i hear a really special record who who were those people what were they going through to create that um and, it, and it, it's only as the magazine evolved that I became aware of that, how important that human element was. And that became what excited me. And as you say, developing the relationship with the musicians, because for them talking to me or any of my other writers, when they do their stories, they're, I'm asking them to open up. I'm trying to get them to open up with talk about personal stuff that maybe they've never talked about before. Cause these people aren't Paul McCartney or Brian Wilson or, you know, they've never spoken about their stuff, let alone told it the stories a million times and done 10 press interviews a day. They're sitting down for the first time talking about the record they made that probably didn't sell very well, and maybe they think they failed. Uh, and you're telling them it's 50 years later, that record is fucking amazing. You created something of true value. You're not a failure. You were right when you wrote that song. It was perfect. Or it was great when whatever, maybe not perfect. And, and that, you know, it's a, I see that in their eyes when I'm talking to them or I hear that in their voice. Uh, it means the world to them because as any artist, you, you really want that validation. Maybe some don't. Most artists want that validation. Even if it comes 40, 50 years later, it's, you know, you said, yes, your art is good. Your art has meaning. Your art... Hey, transcends the time period in which it was made so yeah and that that becomes a relationship and i've stayed in touch with a lot of the musicians i mean remember when we talked to sean bonnewell you know which we had on the podcast and uh, many people commented after they listened to it you could hear in his voice the excitement that we were there saying what did you mean when you wrote the lyrics to trouble you know what was uh, the growing mental pain you were talking about and his eyes lit up like, do you really care about what I was thinking 15 years ago with this record that nobody remembers anymore? That's meant the world to him. Um, and I think that's, I got a first taste of it that day. That was the first interview I ever did with a musician. 
and I wanted to experience that again, and I have many, many times. Not all, not everyone you do, but the people that still care about the music or who cared about it at the time because they were the real thing. When you give them that validation, you know, you know, you've made it actually made a difference in their life, and you're paying back or because. The fact that you're doing the story, they've made a difference in your life because they created something that you love. You're, giving, you're reciprocating by giving that back to them, the knowledge that, yeah, you did a good thing. I remember that with Sean and that just his joy, just even just when we opened the door and how surprised he was. Like, when you guys called me, I just like couldn't believe it. <laughs> you know, he's just <laughs> yeah. like at that point thinking he's just a completely anonymous person in an apartment in North Hollywood. And then yeah. suddenly someone's calling him. It really, it, you could see it. it made him happy. Yeah, because he was probably around people that never even asked him about the music machine. He didn't ask him about those songs that he, you know, slaved over, like poured his guts, you know, opened his veins to make those songs happen. And then like, they're gone and nobody cares anymore. And yeah. poor, they're all put away in a cupboard and uh, what have you done recently? You know, how are you going to pay your rent? Yeah, and indeed he was living in a very small apartment there. Yeah, yeah, it was very real, you know, because we're used to reading interviews with people that are successful and or at least on the surface have a, some kind of music career going. And, and we were tracking down people that weren't successful, that had in may, maybe failed as they saw it. Commercially, they had failed, but that didn't matter. That didn't matter. So they were changing the paradigm there, you know. The greatness of the music should not be measured necessarily in how many units it sold. 100% shouldn't be, right? Because look what does sell. <laughs> if that were the litmus of quality, we'd be in bad shape. Yeah. Yeah. Time bears these things out, you know. I mean, you think of a band like the Stooges, who were, you know, just on the bottom of every bill and, you know, laughed at, you know, with just, it's just, a, they had a court, small cult following. And then, since 20 years, you know, when they reunited, they were selling out stadiums and the bands, you know, like they used to open for like, you know, Grand Funk Railroad or whatever, they're playing the county fairs. The Stooges music held up. It grew over popularity and time. And the same thing happened with the Pretty Things. You know, they continued to find a younger audience, you know, right to the end. They were, you know, three quarters of their audience was young people. Whereas some of the bands that had bigger hits than them, some of the British bands, they were playing the holiday camps to the same old, the same fans that came to see them in the 60s. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think when you look back at bands and who is really influential in the long run on music today, still influential, who's better known now than they were then. Bands like the Velvet Underground, who, you know, people are just talking over them while they're playing in 69. <laughs> At the time, about to break up, uh, and now that that music I feel like is way more influential than um, than a lot of really huge top forty bands at the time on modern music. Oh yeah, music. sure, yeah, absolutely. And that's you know that's part of what we've seen since the beginning of Ugly Things. And it's not because of Ugly Things; it was happening before Ugly Things. But Ugly Things is a reflection of that. Um, I think there was always sort of discerning listeners and writers championing those bands. I mean. Velvet Underground didn't sell many records, but they were always getting written up in the press back then. The, the writers and the fanzine publishers always recognized them. The same with a band like the Stooges or the Flaming Groovies. Again, bands that were not commercially successful, but they always had champions, even while they were together. 
um, there was always people with discerning tastes, and, and um, yeah, Ugly Things was a continuation of that, you know, a continuation of that tradition. I want to cover some really specific moments that you feel are real highlights for you within the magazine. And I'd like to start with the reappearance of Sky Saxon and how that happened. I believe you wrote about that in issue number three. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, Sky, um, I mean, Sky Saxon, I, lo I love the seeds and Sky was such a a mysterious figure because you just heard that, um, you know, from people like Greg Shaw that yeah, Sky really flipped out and he joined a cult and they worship dogs and um, all this kind of thing. And, and he practically living on the street, um, took too much LSD. And of course, like, well, that all sounds great. I'd love to <laughs> find out what happened. <laughs> so I didn't know how to go about doing that. But as it turned out, somebody uh, sent Sky a copy of Ugly Things, like the first or second issue in which I'd written something about him. And um, I didn't have the phone number in the magazine. So he called uh, Tasha's record store, who had an ad. So they had the only San Diego number he could find in the magazine was Tasha's record store. And he called and said, yeah, this is Sky Sunlight of the Seeds. And it's Mike Stacks there. No, you know, he doesn't work here or anything. <laughs> well, uh here's my number, you know, if he comes in, tell him I called, you know, and, and so through that chain of <laughs> events, I ended up calling Sky Sachs and he was living in Hawaii, um, still kind of involved in that uh, Yohoa um, group of people. Um, and we ended up having a lot of long phone conversations um, as a sort of prelim preliminary process to actually doing an interview because he kind of seemed like he was trying to interview me to find out what my story was and why I was called ugly things, not beautiful things, and um, and whether I was worthy of uh, his time, you know, because he was about to, you know, release 10 new albums in 15 different countries or something. So uh, in the end, his phone got cut off. So um, the interview didn't happen, but I used what conversations we we had recorded to put the interview in issue number three. And we turned some of that into a podcast episode two, which was a trip to listen to after all these years. Um, but of course, over the years, Sky, you know, returned to LA and, and we both had several encounters with Sky. Um, always, always entertaining, always memorable. I mean, tell, tell me about yours. I know you had a good one. We were playing at Greg Shaw's Cavern Club in L.A., the National Ramblers, and um, this was 85, I guess. And uh, he just got excited. I didn't know it was Sky, to be honest. I just knew there was this guy with, like, hair down to his butt and just, like, a hip, super hippy-dippy guy. And he would, got really excited while we were playing, so excited that he jumped on to the, well, it's not really a stage at the cavern. I think we're on the same <laughs> level as the audience, which is part of what made it so great. But he just jumped up and like grabbed a pair of maracas and just jumped in and started singing with me into the same microphone. I have no idea what song it was now, but um, probably not one he would know. As I remember, wasn't it Zippity Doodah? It might have been Zippity Doodah, actually. So he probably did know it. Uh, yeah, I think we were playing Zippity Doo, a, a very, you know, rockin' version of Zippity Doo Dah. But, um, 
Yeah. He got really excited and jumped up and started singing with me. And, uh, you know, I think maybe if I had known it was Sky, I would not have reacted the way I did. But my reaction was somewhat like, you know, Pete Townsend having a cop jump on stage. (laughs) (laughs) I was not pleased. And I uh, just shoved him right off the stage (laughs) and then later got into some public trouble for it. Like Carl Rusk pushed Sky Saxon off the stage. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) What did I do? Because I love Sky Saxon, too. Of course, I love the seeds. Yeah, he just needs to know his boundaries. He needs to know his boundaries, and it is not singing into the same microphone as me on Zippity Doodah. I wasn't there, but I remember you telling me about it, because I remember you said that you said that he said afterwards, he was protesting, he said, hey man, I just dig, dig Zippity Doodah, man. A- <laughs> I, just, I just dig Zippity Doodah, man. <laughs> yeah, I felt bad about it. Yeah, this guy was... Yeah, I, I had a few more conversations. And always with Sky, it was like meeting him for the first time. He seemed to have no recollection of any other times she met. And I remember when um, they played, at the, some new version of The Seeds played at the Casbah, and um, issue number 19 had just come out, which was the Kim Fowley issue. And, and the cover on your design was like a like Sergeant Pepper uh, with Kim in the center. And Sky was prominently there, like a picture, a color picture of Sky uh, from the... Spoonful of CD Blues album, you know, and uh, I, so I showed it to Sky. I gave him a copy of the magazine. Here it is, and you know, here you are, and yeah, you'll probably enjoy this. Kim Fowley, you know, he produced your single, and and you knew him, and uh, so oh, thanks, man, you know, and and then I saw him across the room. Uh, you know, he was looking at it, leafing through it, and looking at the cover for a long time. And about half an hour later, he came back up to me, and he's like, "Hey, man, which one is me?" <laughs> Oh, wow. So, yeah, Sky Sacks. Yeah, definitely uh, someone who fits into the archetype so well, just a completely original thinker, just not giving a damn what anyone else was thinking, just this is what I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, what an outsider and, you know, another underdog. And I love guys like that. And, um, yeah, he just went his own way. Um, and, And the records he made are great. Yeah, really fantastic. When I'm unhappy and in my eyes things are bad I just have to close them all and suddenly I'm glad Walking through my dreams at night You're walking through my dreams at night Walking through my dreams and I'm not free All right, film A. Obviously, your hero. You guys actually ended up forming a friendship over the years. Can you talk about that? I think uh, your first contact with him was for issue number four. Yeah, for Phil was, of course, always my number one, you know, icon. You know, so um, Greg Shaw had met him when he on a visit over to England, and um, he had his address. So he gave me Phil's home address, and I wrote him a letter and and um, sent him issue or two of Ugly Things. I didn't know whether he'd respond, but like a week later, I got a letter back from Phil, you know, saying, oh, yeah, of course, I'd love to do an interview. Congratulations on Ugly Things, you know, great name for the magazine or whatever. You know, it was and uh, gave me here's my phone number. Call me anytime. And and, um, I did a couple of interviews by phone. Um, I remember the first one. I it was with a cassette, 
I was recording with a cassette and a suction microphone, a suction cup that went on the telephone. And I plugged the microphone into the wrong socket on the tape recorder. I plugged it in the headphone socket. So about 10 minutes in, I was looking and the meter wasn't moving. And I was like, damn, I blew it. So I think I remember to fill a... I just I just told him exactly what happened. I plugged the microphone in the wrong fucking socket. Could we just start over again? Oh and he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. So we just started over. So right away I thought, yeah, he's he's cool. And, you know, he doesn't have an ego about it, anything. Uh, and we hit it off pretty well. And uh, after that, I mean, I really had the pretty things in every issue. We were always update what was going on with the pretty things at that time. So I would call Phil several times a year. Um, and that went on forever. And whenever I went to England, we would spend time together. And um, he was always super supportive of the magazine because we were always supportive of him. He understood that relationship. Um, it meant a lot to him. And of course, it meant even more to me. So he was on the cover of the first 10 issues, <laughs> even if it was just a small picture of him in the corner. It was kind of became a policy for a while. I, I dispensed with it after a while, but he was always in there. And uh, it turned into one of the best friendships that I've ever had. And, and um, he was so such an inspiration and so encouraging and um, so open and honest in everything he ever told me to a fault. Um, and when, after he passed, um, it was agreed that I would write a biography of him. And so they sent me all of his sketchbooks and his diaries and his journals and I read all these diaries and and he was exactly the person that he always pretended not he had not pretend the, the person that he portrayed himself as when I read the diaries that was the guy there was nothing in there that was not what I knew about Phil everything that he told me to the best of his knowledge was exactly reflected in the pages of that diary along with all of his insecurities which I didn't really know the depth of. I knew he was insecure. I knew he was, you know, lonely at times and uh, a, a, a very singular person who liked to be by himself, liked his own company. I learned more of that in the diaries, but, but it, I was just amazed that there was nothing in there that contradicted anything that he'd ever represented himself as. He was just, he always harped on about honesty and loyalty. Those were things, and they're easy to say the, that, but it was the real thing, you know, absolutely the real thing. And, and it inspired me even more now since he's passed, now that I know him in a new way. So it's going to be really special writing this book, having interviewed him, you know, a hundred times or whatever, and seen all his most intimate thoughts laid out on the page as they were happening. Um, I feel like I understand the guy better and I have even more respect for him. But I know, yeah, he was a very flawed person like we all are. And... Um, that's what just makes it more interesting. Yeah, I mean, she, he sure doesn't come off that way, and through his music and his, you know, public persona, I just it's it's that's amazing to hear. He portrayed confidence like a great frontman does, um, but I mean, Dick Taylor told me it was like in the early '90s that Phil confided him, like, oh yeah, every time he has stage fright, ever since the beginning, never got over it. Partly why he drank, why he drank so much, because he, he had stage fright every time he went on stage, and Dick had no idea. He'd been playing with him since 1963, and he was like 30 years later. Now you're telling me? That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I've been away for a long, long, long 
Let's talk about the monks. There's a band that just blows people away. Really had an impact. Like when you hear the monks for the first time, especially back then when we heard it, it was like, are you kidding? What? <laughs> yeah. What the hell? Yeah, I remember I was, I was at your house, I think, and um, Greg Shaw had made a tape of the monks for Ron Silva. And I think he put the f first two songs of the album, um, Monk Time and Boys Are Boys, and then he just kind of skipped through the album and put like the first 20 seconds of another six of those songs on there. So that's all we heard for, for a, a year or so, actually. Um, but every one of them was it, it's like, how can this have been recorded in 1966? It had such a punk, proto-punk sensibility. Uh, the use of feedback, the minimalism, the stripped down lyrics, the simplistic kind of sloganistic lyrics, and things like, I hate you, but call me, shut up, don't cry. It didn't chime with anything that was happening in that era. You know, even the Velvet Underground did that in a more poetic sort of street poet way that had a sort of a Bob Dylan influence and it was influenced by the Beats. This, who was this influenced by? Exactly. <laughs> it came out of nowhere. That's what made it so exciting. And um, so finally I picked up a reissue of the album and yeah, obsessed over it. Um, it was probably eight or nine years later that, that we actually tracked them down and that came through Keith Patterson uh, from Minneapolis. Great guy, great musician and great friend. And uh, he f somehow got contact, I think through, initially through Gary Berger, the lead singer and guitarist, uh, who also was in contact with Eddie Shaw, the bass player. And Eddie lived in Carson City, Nevada. So Keith came out and Keith flew out to San Diego and we drove to Carson City, Nevada. We rented this little Ford Focus. I remember it was really struggling up, the, <laughs> up those hills, up those inclines, like a little lawnmower engine going. And uh, we knocked on Eddie's door. I mean, he knew we were coming, but um, Eddie took us on this. First of all, he, he got in this Jeep and drove over the mountains to Virginia City, where it was like old Western town, right? Still. And then out into the desert where there used to be all this mining going on. So there were these empty vats of like sulfuric acid and stuff that they would use during the mining process. He gave us this whole tour of like the Nevada, California desert area there and then we went back to his house and had some food and he got out all the monks gear all the scrapbooks all the photos the ropes you know i remember we put the ropes around our neck for the interview we were we were and we were drinking beer i remember drinking lots of beer and eddie was telling us all about the monks it was fantastic and it, again he was a guy who's really excited to like the thing was the, the monks were all from different parts of the states and they would they were stationed in the military in Germany, and that's where they met and formed the band. So when the band dispersed, they all went back to their hometowns, which were all different. You know, Eddie was from Nevada, and Gary's from Minnesota, and Roger was from Texas. Dave was from Washington, and Larry was from Chicago. So they didn't see that was it. Uh, it somehow Gary and Eddie reconnected, and after we interviewed Eddie, the whole band gradually reconnected. But it was great to be the first people to tell the story of the monks. The German fanzine Gorilla Beat had done a story, but it was just based on memories of seeing them on TV and what was in the fan magazines. You know, to actually interview Gary and Eddie and later, you know, Dave and, and Larry and Roger, it was really something because the story was wild and different, 
completely different. People think these band stories are all the same. Well, this one's definitely not the same. Completely different, as you would expect, for that music. Uh, and they cared about their music, and they loved getting the validation. And and from that, and the subsequent years, they reunited. They played in New York City, at the Cave Stomp. They played in Europe. Um, there was a documentary made about them, uh, Eddie, and Eddie wrote a book, Black Monk Time, about his time with the monks. So from us knocking on the door of that house, you know, a whole lot of things happened to those guys, and they lived out the rest of their lives as monks. I mean, Eddie, Eddie's still with us. Um, I think he's the last man standing. I don't sh Maybe Larry is still alive, but uh, Roger and Dave and Gary are all gone, and uh, they were monks to the end after not being monks for 20, 30 years. Yeah, that's such a great thing. And really incredible after thinking about how we saw them and how just what a mysterious other world that seemed to us that you would then be able to affect their lives. That just seems like almost beyond belief to me. I mean, for me, I just wanted to solve the mystery of how, you know, how did that music exist? You know, when you hear that music, I just, you, there's gotta be a great story as to why and how this happened. I mean, I guess for some people, it's just enough to hear the record, but I, but for me, it's like, if, if I know how and why this happened, I'm gonna like the record even more. It's gonna open it up in a whole new way, and it always does. Um, yeah, that was a mystery that had to be solved, and uh, yeah, I gotta thank Keith Patterson for helping with, you know, begin that whole process. Going way back to, I think it was maybe issue 19, uh, which is, I think, the issue with the Kim Fowley interview but you spoke in that that was a particularly i think that was a particularly big issue at the time for you it was 120 pages or something oh, it was like 200 and something 220 pages yeah there you go 220 pages and a ton of work and a lot of time for you and you wrote at that time about um just really feeling totally burnt out at the end of that process from doing that and at that you know 12 uh, 19 issues at that point is a lot of issues. Now you're <laughs> issue, what, six, you're working on issue 64? Yeah. Now that's a lot of time since 19 when you were feeling burnt out. How have you managed to stay interested? How do you, I hate to say, how do you keep it fresh? But, but literally, like, how do you fight burnout from doing this? And how are you continuing to do this after all these years? Yeah, I mean, I remember... Uh, yeah, issue 19 was a particularly difficult one to finish. And, and um, in fact, I think in the editorial, I referred to it as my 19th nervous breakdown. So yeah, it, at that time, I was also working 40 hours a week in the newspaper. So I was cramming in all the ugly things work into my spare time, meaning when I got home from work, I would work on ugly things. Before I went to work, I'd work on ugly things. Sometimes while I was at work, I'd work on ugly things. And then also at the weekend, um, so it was real, I was really burning the candle at both ends, plus playing in a band and all the other stuff. Uh, the, the, that period of magazines from like 19 to 35, um, were really thick. <laughs> they were like, and I was overextending myself, I think. Yeah. So I struggled. Um, and then I quit my day job. I quit the job of the newspaper, um, in, uh, 2016. 2006, uh, because Philip was born, and I decided to, to quit my day job and be a stay-at-home dad and have the magazine be my main source of income, which I th turned out to be the, the best decision that I'd made, one of the best decisions I'd ever made. B 
because the magazine immediately started paying for itself because I could now put it on a regular publishing schedule at that point twice a year and just work full time on that. And the burnout kind of ended at that point. Um, and I became more and more grateful for what I had. And I, and I was able to, the, the magazine was not eating into my spare time anymore. I could just devote my time to it along with raising my son, of course, and being with my family and with Anya and everything. Um, so, and then I decided to go up to three issues a year, but also make them slightly thinner, you know. So I kind of took control of it, and that's how I managed to not burn out. I now know exactly how to plan my time. It's still very tight, and I do sometimes feel like I'm burning out, and, you know, I take a vacation, take a break, and take a nap. <laughs> I make it work, um, but yeah, it's, I still sometimes feel like it's uh, it's too much. It's you know, um, but I'm still excited. But as long as it's a story that excites me, and there always seems to be, and and now we're 40 years in. When I started the magazine, when we interviewed Sean Bonnewell, he was 43 years old. You were 16, and I was just turned 21. Now I'm 62, 61. 61, sorry. And I'm interviewing guys that are like 80. Um, so time is running out. So when I'm doing these stories, I get excited because I know I've got to f get on the next one. I can't just w wait. I got to do it. You know, I, when I had the chance to interview PJ Proby, which I'd wanted to do for years. In fact, I had a chance 15 years ago, but he wanted $100 to be interviewed. So I so I declined because oh, <laughs> so I waited 15 years. The price went down to zero. He's now 84 years old. I mean, he sounds great. Uh, he sounds like a young man, but he's not going to be around forever. Every issue, I, I got a big list of names of people who passed away. Their stories aren't going to get told. So I have to keep chasing those stories. And that's what keeps me going. And that's what keeps it fresh. And that's what stops it getting burned out. I feel a sense of responsibility to tell these stories. Uh, and I still get excited about it. Um, and as long as the readers are excited about it, uh, I know that I'm not banging my head against the wall. So thank you, readers, for helping keep me fresh and um, keeping me alive. Do you see the, the ugly things moving more beyond just print into other forms of media as you've begun to do. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, we have to, to survive to some extent, or just to, I hate the word stay relevant because I don't know, it sounds so self-important, um, but to, to keep, continue to engage with readers and find readers and find, you know, like they say now followers in quotation marks. Um, we have to go into other media. Print is what I love. Print, is my favorite thing there is, along with vinyl. You know, physical media, reading off of a page. I, I'd never read off of devices except for little news stories. Can't read long things, can't read books, can't read long stories on devices, don't want to, want to read it on paper. And I, and I know Ugly Things readers want to have that physical artifact of a printed magazine. So that will, as long as uh, that is financially viable, I will continue to do that. When it becomes not financially viable, I don't know if the magazine will continue to exist, to be honest, because it's such a part of what we do. Uh, but yeah, um, we'll expand a little bit more into digital. Um, 
I make some of the issues available digitally, but not all of them in real time because it doesn't excite me. And talking to other magazine publishers who have both print and digital, they say the digital doesn't really sell that much anyway. So I really just do it mostly for, for issues that are out of print to make them available. Um, the podcast, though, is another medium where I am excited by that. I like the podcast format. I love to listen to podcasts. So I thought it seemed logical to present some of these stories where we can bring them alive with some music and you can actually hear the real voices of the people in the interviews. So I am excited about the podcast. It's not something that generates a lot of money, so we have to do it for the love of it and to bring more attention to the to the magazine. I mean, the, our motivation anyway isn't to make money. It's never been about making money. But, um, but you do have to pay your bills. Yeah, especially when you have a family. Especially when you have a family, yeah. I have a question about uh, how the magazine was affected by Anya coming into your life and the role that Anya plays in the magazine. Um, yeah, Anya, having Anya in my life had a big impact on, well, obviously on my life as a whole, but also she became involved with the magazine because the magazine is such a big part of my life and she, we met through the magazine. You know, she contacted me initially because she found the magazine and she was interested in advertising the clothes store she had in London with Babs uh, Di you know, Diabolic. So that's how we first got in contact. So like so many of my friendships and relationships, it's been through the magazine that I've met people. Um, so we, uh, when Anya came over and we got married and she became involved with the magazine, it really helped me focus more uh, because she's a very organized person. I mean, I'm pretty organized too, and but she helped me get more organized and she has a great eye for design. So I asked her to start doing the covers and she's continued to do the covers and she has a distinctive style that's just now a part of what we are. Um, she's also written some stories. She did a great interview with Patty Quattro about the Pleasure Seekers in issue number 31. Um, she's been a part of many of the interviews and stories that I've done. So, yeah, and uh, and after Philip was born, I mean, that just gave me more of a sense of purpose to make the magazine work, uh, to stay on a regular publishing schedule, to make sure that it brought in income and to manage my time in a way where I can have time with my family and to do my work. So, yeah, it's it's had a huge impact personally and on the actual look of the magazine and and the fact that it's a more professional and regularly published journal now. Yeah. Can see that you can see the uh, the a woman's touch. It was badly needed on that magazine. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like a teenager's room before she got around there. No, uh, but I thought it would be good to bring that up because I know she is such a big part of the magazine and your life. Yeah, I mean she's like us. She's a real believer in that kind of music, um, and you know that's what brought us together. You know, that's how we all find each other, all the people that love this kind of music. And um, it's a certain kind of person, you know. Um, it's not just a matter of music taste. It's a way of looking at the world, I think. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, we should probably wrap it up by saying that was awesome. 
Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Carl. Thank you for asking me to do it. I appreciate that. That's very nice. It's yeah. I mean, we've, we've uh, I don't know how many times we sat down and had conversations, but the first time you've ever actually interviewed me. But it really, this kind of felt like a conversation. Yeah, well, I'm honored that you asked me. I appreciate it very much. It was super fun. Well, you were there right from the beginning, and here you are, at 40 years in, and you're here. Thank God. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad to have you in my life. Yeah. Likewise. Likewise. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer. Your guest host this week was Carl Rusk, who interviewed Mike Stacks. That's me. On August 25th, 26th, and 27th, we will be hosting a 40th anniversary Ugly Things weekend in San Diego. There will be two nights of great music at the Casbah and daytime events with special guests at the Whistle Stop. More info is at the Ugly Things website. Tickets available at the Casbah website. Hope you'll join us. You can order the latest issue of Ugly Things magazine at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com. Where you can also order back issues, vinyl CDs and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and spread the word to your friends. We would also appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter very small monthly donation patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content including interview material not heard in the episode your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat garage and psychedelic music i'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top patreon supporters david biasotti david jones michael barbara Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Riger, and Derek Davidson. Thank you all of you for your support, and thank you for listening. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts 
or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.